This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for a Savior. We thank you that Christ became a human being who lived the perfect life that we could never live and who died the death we should have died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, that he is ascended to your right hand, that he is interceding for us now and that he is returning in victory. And Lord, until that day, make us faithful. Use your word now, the power of your spirit to equip us to be your people in this world that we might be faithful to you until that day. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Monte Cassino was an ancient church in Italy. It was about 80 miles southeast of Rome and it was a very unlikely place for a battle to take place. It dated from the 6th century AD. It was in a historic protected zone in, in Italy. But during World War II, as, as our troops made the, the slow advance up the Italian peninsula, our casualties had been awful as we had advanced all the way up the boot of, of Italy from south to, to north. As we got close to Monte Cassino, our, our, our commanders believed that the Germans were using the, this ancient church, which sits up on top of a, a hill, has a commanding view of, of everything beneath. Our commanders came to believe that the Germans were using that church as an observation point to, to pinpoint their artillery on our troops. And so they, they felt that they had no choice but to, to take it out. And on February the 15th, 1944, 1,400 tons of bombs were dropped on Monte Cassino. Bombs of a different sort had been dropped on the church at Ephesus in the first century. They were lethal bombs of false teaching. And so the Apostle Paul sent Timothy to help this church get back to the gospel and be a beacon of light shining in Ephesus once again. And in this, the passage we're gonna look at today, the Apostle Paul gives us just one of the most beautiful views of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter three. 1 Timothy chapter three, and we're gonna look at verses 14 through 16 today and talk about the church of Jesus Christ and the fact that it is the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at just verses 14 through 16 today, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What a passage. What do we see here about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, let's, let's see something about the identity of the church in verses 14 and 15. Look at it again. Paul says, I write these things to you hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Wow, what a statement about the church, the identity of the church. The great scholar of First and Second Timothy, William Mounts, says this, this is perhaps the most significant phrase in all the pastoral epistles. It shows more clearly and more dramatically than anything else what is at stake because these false teachers in Ephesus have not been destroying a social club. This is what? First of all, it is God's household in verse 15. The church is God's household. In other words, it's God's family. It's the family of God. In this family, God becomes our father and our brothers and sisters and our, our fellow Christians become our brothers and sisters. And we find a new family. I, I experienced this, you know, when God really got a hold of my life as a senior in high school, the youth group here, I grew up in this church, the youth group here became just a family to me, a a group of brothers and sisters in Christ, and I experienced the love of the Lord in such a powerful way through my brothers and sisters in Christ, and in a world where so many families are, are broken and shattered. Listen, the church is to be a haven of love, where you find brothers and sisters in the Lord, and God adopts you as his own. He becomes your father and so the church is God's household, the family of God. And then what does Paul say in verse 15? He says that it is the church of the living God. Now the word church means assembly, right? We are, we are, the, we are the assembly of the living God. When we assemble ourselves together, the living God is among us. He is among us right here, right now. This is why you don't want to miss corporate worship unless you absolutely have to because you never know what the living God can do in your life. 
because he is among his people in power, the power of the Spirit. We are, we are the assembly, the congregation of what? The living God. Now that phrase, the living God, was used in the Old Testament to distinguish Yahweh from the dead deities of the pagan world. And these believers in Ephesus knew all about you know, false gods. Ephesus was just the most pagan city imaginable. It was a center of the occult. It was a, the, the center in the world of, of the, the, the worship of the false goddess Artemis. But these believers had come out of that false worship. And as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 of the believers in Thessalonica, it could be said also of the believers in Ephesus that in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the Bible says that they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is what conversion is. We are turning to the living God from our God substitutes, from idols, to serve the living and true God. And then he says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul uses two architectural metaphors here for the church. He says that the the church is the the pillar of the truth. So the Ephesians knew all about pillars. Looming over the city of Ephesus in the first century was the temple of Artemis, or some know it as the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was dedicated to the worship of this false goddess, Artemis. The most distinguishing architectural features of the temple of Artemis were without a doubt uh, the majestic pillars, the columns, and you can see on the, the left that, you know, what it would have looked like in the first century, and, and you can e- even see the ruins of some of those columns today. And so, obviously, these pillars <laughs> in the temple of Artemis were used to prop up a building that was dedicated to the worship of a false god, an idol. The church at Ephesus didn't even have a building, let alone one this impressive. (laughs) What they did have was a true and living God and a dynamic gospel, the good news about that God and what he had done through his son. And Paul is saying here that the task of the church, just like a pillar holds up a building The task of the church is to hold up the gospel, to proclaim the gospel before the world. We want people to see Christ. And so the church, the pillar of truth, holds up the truth of the gospel before the world. So we are the pillar of truth. And then he says we are the foundation of the truth. A building is only as good as its foundation. A foundation protects and stabilizes a building. When, when, the, when wind and storms blow 
It's that foundation that stabilizes and, and protects and guards the building. So as the foundation of the truth, the task of the church is to, is to guard and protect the truth of God's word. When the storms and winds of untruth and heresy and false teaching blow, we as the church are to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And so we're the pillar of truth. We hold the truth up. We hold it up. We're the foundation of truth. We hold it fast. We don't give way on the truth of God's word. We're to be a firm foundation for God's truth. Guard it, protect it, hold it fast. And so this is the identity of the church. And then in verse 16, he talks about the message of the church. Look at verse 16, the first part of it. He says, and most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. So what is the mystery of godliness? It is the gospel, which has now been revealed. God has pulled back the veil, and now we can see his full plan of salvation. That's the mystery of godliness. And he says, it is great. Now it's interesting, when the church at Ephesus was started and Paul was, was doing ministry in the city of Ephesus, Luke tells us in Acts 19 that a riot began. And all these, these pagans, um, they, the one, they made idols for the people. Or they were losing money because so many people were coming to Christ. They weren't buying their idols anymore. And so a mob formed, and Luke tells us in Acts 19 that they went into the amphitheater in Ephesus. And he says for two hours they were chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But of course, Artemis was a non-existing god. Artemis was nothing. Artemis was a dead deity. Paul says here that what's really great is a risen Savior. And the rest of verse 16 is all about Jesus. Scholars believe that what we see here in verse 16 was an, an early Christian creed that these believers would sing. It became an early worship song. And it's, it, in the original, it's, it's in three rhythmic couplets, each of which highlights a different dimension of the work of Christ. So let's, let's look at these three dimensions that we see in this early Christian worship song. First of all, it tells us about the revelation of Christ. We see that in these first two lines. First of all, it says, he was manifested in the flesh. That word manifested means revealed. So he was revealed in the flesh. So obviously it's talking about the incarnation that God became man but it's also pointing to 
his pre-existence. Christ was revealed in the flesh, but that does not mean that's when Christ came to exist. No, there was never a time when Christ did not exist. There was never a time when, he, when, when Christ was not. He was there in the beginning. And then at the, at the point in time, he became flesh for us. Now John 1 and, and, and also John 1.14 tells us about this. First of all, John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason that he became a human being was to die for human beings and rise again for us. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He was manifested in the flesh. Second, vindicated in the spirit. What happened when Jesus was baptized? Luke tells us that, that, that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a, a dove. And so Christ was anointed by the spirit. And then what happens when he goes to, to Nazareth? And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and turns to what we now know as Isaiah 61, which says, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And then what event was it that vindicated the identity of Christ as the true son of God who had died for our sins? It was the resurrection. His resurrection by the power of the Spirit was the declaration of who he was, his vindication. Romans chapter one and verses three and four says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was vindicated in the spirit. So the revelation of Christ. Second, the witnesses of Christ. The witnesses of Christ. Look at this third line. He was seen by angels. Now the angel saw it all. It was an angel who appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to give birth to the son of God. It was angels who appeared to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth, who appeared to the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem and announced to them that the Savior had been born. And it was the angels who were at the empty tomb. When, when, when they came to the, when, when, when the first witnesses came to the empty tomb, it was the angels who, who, who told them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? <laughs> he is not here. He is risen. And it will be the angels who will return with Christ when he comes again in victory, seen by angels. And then he tells us 
about the other witnesses preached among the nations. That's you and me. <laughs> We're the other witnesses. By the time that 1 Timothy was written, the gospel had been preached throughout much of the Greco-Roman world. But now that task continues. Because where does Christ tell us to preach the gospel? Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again in Acts 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that task of preaching him among the nations continues with you and me, the witnesses of Christ. Third, the reception of Christ. And we see that in these final two lines. First of all, it says he was believed on in the world. Now this is the result of the fact that he was preached among the nations. Zane Pratt is one of our vice presidents with the International Mission Board and Zane was, was sharing one day and this just absolutely struck me. You know, he said that w despite all of the obstacles to the gospel that we face in our world, false religions, totalitarian governments, I mean, just massive obstacles that are put in the way Zane said, you know, wherever we have gone and stayed and learned the language and shared the gospel, people have come to Christ. People have believed in the good news, right? The fact that Jesus is believed on in the world is the result of the fact that he is preached among the nations. It has to be proclaimed. People have to hear Paul says in Romans 10 and verses 13 and 14, 14 and 15, he says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So church, this is our task. Keep preaching the gospel and keep sending others to go preach the gospel where we cannot go because this gospel is for all the world. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He is believed on in the world and then taken up in glory. Now this refers to the ascension of Christ. After he was raised from the dead, after spending those, those weeks re resurrected he, with his disciples, he, was, he ascended. He was, he was received back into heaven after his mission was completed where, as we said earlier in the Apostles' Creed, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now in the Lord's Supper, which we're preparing to enter into, we, 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 we celebrate that very thing. 
In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, the Apostle Paul says there, for, for, for whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now there are two things here we need to grab a hold of. In the Lord's Supper, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim our Lord's death. We look back to the cross. We look back to the fact that his blood was shed for us, that his body was broken for us. In the Lord's Supper, we are looking back to the cross and, 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 and it puts before us in a graphic way what is central to us that we have a savior who died for sinners like you and me and that he was raised from the dead. So we're looking back, we're proclaiming his death, but we're doing that what? Until he comes. So it's not only a look backwards, it's a look forward as well. We proclaim his death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking forward as well. We are looking forward to another supper, another feast that we will have with Jesus in a new heaven and earth when he comes again. That is, our, that is what we look forward to. We look back, we look forward, and it changes our lives right now in the present. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, as we prepare to take part in this special meal that, that you ordained, may we be aware of the fact that we're looking back at your finished work on our behalf, your death for our sins, your resurrection from the dead. And we are looking forward to the fact that you are coming again in victory that one day we will celebrate with you in a new heaven and earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we look back to your finished work and as we look forward to your triumphant return, may our lives be changed in the present, right here, right now, as we live for you. And Lord, may you use what we're about to do as a source of strengthening, of drawing near to you, of, of, of feasting on the only, the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. The Lord Jesus, it's in his, his name that we pray. So, I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 